Hello, welcome to episode 26 of Rising with the Tide podcast. Hello. I'm Skander, accompanied by Jamie, as always. Thank you for tuning in. This is um, one of our kind of first, uh, I guess, of season three, potentially. I don't know. Are we se- are we starting season three, Jamie? I'm not. I'm not entirely um, sure. Let's see how many how many episodes we have in season. Yeah, <laughs> you might have noticed that our content has been a little bit uh, on and off the past few months. Um, obviously, you know, um, Jamie has had his dissertation, and I have been moving around uh, for for different reasons, and so. But now that I'm in one place and Jamie's thesis is coming to an end, <laughs> actually having to submit his work, we should put out content uh, more consistently like we did at the start. So thank you for sticking with us. Um, I want to actually start um, by quickly thanking our Patreons as well, because that's something that we used to do at the end of the episodes. I kind of want to start doing that at the beginning now. So thank you to Pablo, George, Nadia, Shadia, I'm not forgetting anyone. Yeah, no, I'm not forgetting anyone. <laughs> that would be bad. No, I'm not forgetting anyone. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for for you guys, for your continued support. Uh, it means the world to us. It means that we can actually keep this pro- little project going uh, that's been more than a year and a half now. Um, and it means we can keep it going yeah. for free thanks to your donations. So big, big, big thank you to you guys. And the song you just listened to was uh, Dust by Ataxia. I actually really like that song. I'm definitely going to check out the band and you should too and uh yeah so today we're having nicholas Bors, a climate scientist at the potsdam institute for climate impact research super excited to have you on thank you for coming how are you doing i'm good how are you good good so a lot of our followers do follow climate science and stuff but some are here to discover new topics and such so they might not know who you are do you want to maybe go through a little bit your background and uh, where you come from what you've done that sort of thing yeah, sure, I can try. I'm a physicist and mathematician by, by training and um, worked on dynamical system theory for some time before, maybe some almost 10 years ago, I switched to climate science for a PhD. Um, and since then, I'm sort of trying to, to use the, the skill set that I've learned as a, as a physicist and as a mathematician, in particular when it comes to abrupt transitions, strongly nonlinear behavior and extreme events um, on a conceptual, theoretical level and somehow um, bring that into, into, in, make that useful for climate science. So that was basically my, yeah, the, the motivation to switch fields was to um, apply these things in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a surrounding where I have the feeling that when I go home, I have the feeling I, I did something, something useful. And yeah, yeah so the, since then I've um, really almost always follows, followed this idea of applying concepts from dynamical system theory, complexity science to problems, different problems in, let's say, earth system science, ranging from atmospheric dynamics to um, ice sheets, ocean circulation, rainforests, these kind of things. And you're currently uh, leading the artificial intelligence uh, future lab. You're also a coordinator for the Horizon 2020 project Tipping Points. Uh, is that correct? Yes, that's true. So, um, yeah, on the one hand, I am I'm, I'm, I'm leading this group on trying to combine the sort of classical process-based differential equation models that describe parts of the Earth system um, to combine those with um, the models that have written these very nice and fancy models from, from machine learning and in particular deep learning 
um, to make, construct so-called what we call hybrid models that mm -hmm. because of the strong data focused or data trainable uh, way how uh, machine learning models work, um, then the hope is that we can have these hybrid models that combine both the physical models and the machine learning components, that those can be calibrated much better with respect to observations. And that is, of course, so the number of high, so the, the, the density, the accuracy, the availability of, of high resolution data of virtually all sorts of processes in the Earth system has increased massively in, in recent years. And that mm -hmm. basically provides a frame, like provides um, the, the basis so, so that this can actually be useful to, to really get a, um, the next generation of of, of models of components of the earth system and maybe at some point then even of like like full fully coupled earth system models and the other thing that you mentioned this um project the types project tipping points in the earth system it's an horizon 2020 project so funded by the european commission where we um so the initial idea was um there has been some 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 work or had we haven't really wrote that proposal there had been some work on um, quite some work actually. And, and if you ask the right people, then they tell you this all goes back to the 70s um, or the 60s, even um, non strongly nonlinear um, critical behavior in parts of the earth system or even in the, in the, in the, in the climate system as a, as, as a whole. Um, then I mean, one has to be careful about the letter because it's um, there's this, we are we, cur currently what we understand is that we can only tip like the whole climate system could in principle tip to a much colder state but we're not sure about or we, we don't really have very strong evidence to believe that we could tip into a much much hotter state abruptly so mm -hmm. um just as a in parenthesis so yes so we, in, in, the idea was to provide a mathematical theory really the end to, to a unified mathematical framework to 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 understand and describe and possibly then predict um, such critical behavior in parts of the Earth system and well-known um, examples of components of the Earth system that we are studying there is the, the ice sheets in Greenland and, and Antarctica. And there's this famous um, ocean circulation called the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, which uh, presumably has two different stable states of operation, one with a very strong circulation mode and one with a much weaker one. But there's also the monsoon systems in the tropics, like in India and Western Africa or South America. There's the Amazon rainforest, where we believe that um, under this more or less same climate forcing, um, there's either a rainforest state or a savanna state possible. And then you can have abrupt transitions happening between them. And yeah, so that the, the, the first idea was to just provide a mathematical framework and then it somehow exploded. And now it's a huge, <laughs> project where we have still, I mean, the, the core is still the mathematical analysis, but there's modelers from like working with sort of simple models to like the most comprehensive complex earth system models to study these systems, study these their interactions, see what it means. That's one of the crucial questions, I think. Um, that's, there's this concept of equilibrium climate sensitivity, which is the, the amount of warming that you get from a, from a doubling, doubling of CO2 and then rating until the system goes into equilibrium. And this is, so a lot of these concepts are um, sort of not really 
designed for a world where you can have abrupt transitions, where you can have critical abrupt behavior. And so there's something to be done to adapt this, this whole idea of climate response to forcing in the presence of, of abrupt tipping behavior. And then the final part of the project is to really also go into, say, um, a mathematical perspective of the decision theory, the political decision theory um, that is necessary to, um, to deal with these kind of um, problems in the, and then to define what we call safe operating spaces for humanity. Yeah, it's quite uh, varied. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like, I don't know, like one, not one, but multiple methodologies that can just be applied every, to so many different things. It's quite interesting. Yeah, that's sort of the, I mean, the, so why I was lucky in a sense, um, because there's a lot of concepts from, from, from dynamical system theory, also from statistical mechanics, so all these theoretical physics, applied, applied mathematics um, theories that are very universal and are very, um, so they can be applied in many different contexts that are relevant in earth science and climate science. It's quite interesting how you are using machine learning to sort of create a, as you said, a hybrid model. Um, with the sort of data that you're dealing with, is this is this sort of a unique approach, or have you found this people creating similar models in the same way in, in kind of your area? It's certainly not unique. It's um, it's 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 more 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 hype actually. There's many groups um, doing this. Um, with like different scales of funding, different, um, I mean, maybe some differing um, foci on what, what, they, what they emphasize on. Um, it's a very, very large group at Caltech doing, doing similar. I mean, they really, I mean, their plan is to, to, to build the first fully full earth system model in just a few years now. Really? Um, yeah. <laughs> that's, but, that's quite exciting. Right, the, 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 sorry, this is to build the first, Earth system model that really follows this idea of of incorporating um, observational data. Right, that uh, actually works. <laughs> but, yeah, well, I mean, no, I mean, no, no, it's okay. So um, <laughs> uh, uh, for for me, Earth system models, uh, the ones that I mean, like the ones that are used right now, that are used for these, for the to produce the results that are des described in the recent assessment report, the IPCC report. I mean, these are some of the most impressive machines that humans have built. Mm. I mean, humans have also sort of managed to get us in, into a situation where it's really urgent to to understand what's 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 happening due to our actions. So it's not, I wouldn't say, I mean, humans aren't particularly smart in a, on, a, on a macroscopic level, but they are also, I mean, they're smart enough to build these models and these models are great. They have, of course, they have their problems, but these, I mean, they are fantastic machines and um, I have infinite respect for the people who construct these models and just with the availability of, of, I mean, of these huge amounts of observational data, there's the hope that we can further improve the models by sort of calibrating them um, more directly towards those observational data. And yeah, this is this is something that is um, yeah a lot of people are interested in this, and we are one one tiny tiny part of that community. You you were referring to the benefits of um, implementing machine learning into sort of your your um, your method, um, like in terms of I guess the accuracy. I guess was one of the, one of the things you said. Is the are the benefits really yielded in in terms of efficiency? Like, is it just that you can you can more reliably get um, results of such a high quality, or is it that you could never really get such results without machine learning? Well, what does it really offer uh, machine learning? So 
what you can never do is to build a one-to-one -one image of the system that you want to model. So you have, mm. right? I mean, there's this um, uh, this short story by by Borges um, that, um, where there's this idea that the cartographers of some um, fiction empire that they build a map which was at a one-to-one -one, um, ratio, and that was of course perfectly useless because it was just as big as the real thing that they wanted to map. And then, if you would now build a model that would really incorporate explicitly resolve everything that happens in the real world then it would just be the real world and it would be as complicated i mean it's impossible obviously but even if we could we can't but even if we could it would be perfectly useless because we wouldn't understand that model any better than the, than the thing it's trying to describe we just made a copy um so what you have to do i mean you're always coarse graining you're always simplifying when you model you're always focusing on on, on specific processes and you're going to leave away others and what, where this is most crucial in earth system science or in climate modeling, that's the traditional um, term more. And also in, so in producing the, in building these models, they always um, operate at a finite spatial resolution. So there's always going to be processes, droplet formation, or I mean, if you just go down, down the spatial scales, there's always gonna be processes that aren't incorporated explicitly in the way that really physicists know that these processes work it's impossible i mean and then there's also others so this and then there instead what we, we call this parametrizations so we are basically just just building an empirical relationships for these processes that are not explicitly resolved and um, an important part are those processes that happen at scales that are not resolved in the in the, in the models there's of course a tendency towards Incre ever increasing the resolution of these models. So there's more and more processes involved and, and, and incorporated. So the, in, the, in a sense, the models become more and more physical, but there is never, I mean, you won't never, will never reach a satisfa satisfying um, um, threshold here. It will, it will always be in, imperfect. And then there's processes that are simply not understood well enough that we can really, um, Write in, write them in as in, in physical in physical equations. So you're making simplifications, you're making approximations. People are making them to the very best of their knowledge, but still you in, I mean, you induce errors into the models. And by when I say empirical relationships, so basically what you, I mean, it's 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 not like that. But if you imagine um, a scatter plot of two two variables, and then you just you draw an image put a line in between them and then you get a parameter for the slope and that is not a physical constant but it's just some parameter that you sort of got from fitting data mm. and um, obviously what they do in climate models is much more complicated much much more sophisticated but it boils down to this fact that you have parameters going into these i mean in, in these models there are parameters which are empirical and not physical constants and their value, determining their values is, is really one of the most difficult parts of Earth system modeling, in addition to really implementing the physics. And now we are already in a, in a, in a situation where people who have a background in machine learning start to, to get, I mean, they, they start to get, um, in German we say they, they start to get great big ears, because yeah. that is somehow a situation you have, I mean, you might have data and you want to infer laws and patterns from, from data. And 
the question is how do you do that in the best and most i mean in the in the best and optimal way i guess it can only be as good as the data you guys are receiving is is in the first place yeah i remember we we talked to um keith bevins one of the best hydrologists of this era <laughs> uh he's he's a, a really really great um hydrologist and he was explaining to us uh if you haven't uh, listened to it yet, episode two, I believe it was. And he taught us all about these uncertainties in, in hydrology. And, and it was uh, quite a bit more uncertainty, I think, than we expected in these, like just ra catching rain, for example, these sort of things. And then, you know, I guess he kind of showed, used that to show us how climate models in general can all, like are compounding different uncertainties everywhere. But I guess as we're seeing with the uh, IPCC reports, it's, tends to be more towards the uh, optimist side or our uncertainties mm. like we, we tend to be too optimistic i think <laughs> maybe i i want to keep just talking a little bit more about these um the idea of uncertainties and, and ask kind of what the uncertainties in your work are beyond this data um, and why maybe we still have uh, what you called um, critical transition points as mm. um uncertain and have we made would you consider that we've made much progress on uncertainties in the past like you know five or ten years or um have there been any breakthroughs in your opinion definitely and many many instances but it's also of course i mean there's for example i mean there's an improvement in i mean the first step is to you have to like sort of reliably be able to 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 estimate your uncertainties first right i mean the next thing then is to you try to reduce the uncertainties but i think the first thing is to really um, always propagate from, 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 from the original data that you have, you do a data analysis, you do a modeling, modeling exercise, you estimate parameters for a model, then given the data you have, you, have, you should always report a range of possible parameters, so you, the, the uncertainties and the parameters is relevant. And this, of course, then when you, for, for, for an Earth system model, if you have like at the, at the order of magnitude of hundreds of such free parameters, and then they all have their own uncertainties, but they are not independent, then it becomes a very um, challenging and interesting task to really report all those uncertainties properly and really um, sort of um, sample the, the whole space that is sort of um, set up by all those, all, the, all those uncertainties. And then for the kind of work that I'm, uh, maybe before I come to that, um, one improvement and that somehow, um, picking up on what I, what I said earlier about using observations. So one thing instead of really, so there's two ways of combining models, physics-based models with observations. So you could, all, I mean, imagine that you have two models of some sort of a physical process and the one model um, provides a good prediction of that physical process that you can observe and the other one model doesn't. And then you just throw away the second and you keep the first. Now, usually it's not like, it's not like that black and white you have different processes and one model is better at one representing one and the other model is better at reproducing the other and so on and then you also have usually you don't have two but you might have like no 20 30 40 models yeah. and then what you could do is you can start to either weigh those models by seeing how good are they at representing different kinds of observations that i also have then you can also provide a second sort of weights by saying uh, it's more important that the model gets the, I don't know, yeah. the climate system gets the global mean temperature right, then it does, then it gets something else right. So I'm going to adjust the weights there a little bit. I guess those weight, that way weighting is also 
subjective yes that that second is subjective the first i mean the choice of how you weigh is subjective but then it's 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 not so subjective on anymore but you could also say let's constrain these models so that if i have if you have like a set of 30 40 models then what in you have each of them has a trajectory then you can perturb the parameters so each model actually gives you a whole ensemble of trajectories and then what you get in the end is a full distribution of outcomes so you get, yeah. let's say, for the for the global mean temperature by 2100, you get a distribution um, which ranges from I don't know one to eight degrees with and gives you a probability on on that range. And and definitely one is not as is not is not very likely. Eight isn't very likely, and mm -hmm. somewhere somewhere in between you have more probability weight. And okay. No, still, that is, I mean, it's a huge range. And you might say, well, I'm, I'm, I mean, if I'm, I mean, I'm a scientist and I might not care, but then if I talk to politicians and they want to know, and then I'm mm -hmm. telling them something, yeah, well, somewhere between one and eight degrees. And they tell me, well, um, that's not really, that's not really helpful for us. And then you want to constrain. And that is, uh, this is something that has happened actually in the most recent IPCC report. The observations have been used to constrain this, this quantity that we talked about earlier already, the equilibrium climate sensitivity, which has been in a range from 1.5 to 4.5 degrees, basically since the late 70s, I guess. Yeah. And that hasn't changed. And then people were always sort of um, not, not so happy about this large range of uncertainty, because it also leads to a large spread in how warm it's going to get by 2100. And using observations, um, your so-called so-called emergent constraints had been identified, and that now finally we managed not just using the models, but using the models and combining them with the observations and seeing how the models um, reproduce observations in a specific way, in a, in, a, in a sophisticated way. The range could be narrowed down. So there is yeah. there is success. Um, for the kind of work that I'm doing with respect to these tipping elements, like the Greenland ice sheet or the, the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, the Amazon, then of course, I mean, at the latest, if you write like a high impact paper on one of these systems, and then you have a have an interview, and then they ask you, so when it's gonna, when is it gonna happen? What's, um, the, what's the exact yeah. day and time, <laughs> yeah, please? <laughs> time, please. The time of the day, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then I don't know. I mean, there, it's it's really hard. I mean. I, I wouldn't even say we can do this kind of exercise with the probability distribution because mm -hmm. um, it is also, of course, what I said earlier about the models, the probability distribution is just reflecting, I mean, it's it's a cross-model thing. So you're still living in a multi-model world to get that distribution. Mm -hmm. And then if all the models are somehow all, all consistently wrong in some way, they miss some process that we just don't know, then that distribution will not reflect that sort of uncertainty. So there's yeah. also like the, the unknown part and these tipping elements, like the, the ice sheets or the Amazon rainforest and so on, they are part of this, of this sort, I mean, more or less unknown risk of that things might, might turn out to turn, turn out differently than these, I mean, many of these models tell us. Yeah. So you guys have to deal with a lot of like uh, black swans. Um, yes. Exactly. Say like uh, unknown unknowns. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds a lot like uh, what we face in kind of social sciences. With you know, the more you, the more you make, uh, you abstract any kind of system. You know, like you kind of have to, but at the same time, the more you do, the less it looks like the real system that you're actually trying to describe. And it's it's always yeah, it's always a, a pain. I I want to hone in maybe a little bit more 
on uh, a specific topic because we we've been talking a lot about uncertainties in general but this paper that you you kind of uh, mentioned uh, very briefly called observation based early warning signals for collapse of the atlantic meridional overturning circulation it got a lot of attention recently um would you mind maybe explaining to us what the AMOC is and how it's important to our climate's um, functioning and mm-hmm. kind of why do you think maybe that, you know, that paper really uh, uh, ruffled some feathers? Yeah, I can, I, I can try. Um, so it's an, it's an ocean circulation system. It's part of a circulation system that covers basically the, the entire oceans of the, like all the oceans of, of the planet and uh, the thermohaline circulation. But what I focused on was the Atlantic part of it, where it brings so at the surface of the Atlantic Ocean, it goes northward, really from, from the Southern Ocean, from the Southern Atlantic northward towards, like in, I mean, it changes a little bit and it has a complex structure, but in, in general, it goes from South to North. And in this movement from South to North, it brings warm water masses from the subtropics and tropics to, to the North Atlantic. And it also brings, because a lot of the water on the way evaporates, and then the water that arrives in the North Atlantic is very salty, because the salt doesn't, doesn't evaporate, obviously. And then in the, once it arrives in the North Atlantic, somewhere um, around Greenland, maybe, um, because it is then co- cooled down, and it still has a lot of salt, it is very heavy, so it starts sinking. And um, this is basically the engine of the circulation system is this heavy water masses sinking down to the bottom of the ocean. And then again, at a first level of approximation at the bottom of the ocean, it returns from from north to south. So this is why it's it's the Atlantic meridional because it goes from south to north, um, overturning because it has this, so it it has this, it's a circulation where you have flow in one direction at the surface and then in the other direction at the bottom, that's what's overturning and that's a circulation. So that explains this name, the AMOC. Um, and then yeah, many people have called this the Gulf Stream. Um, I had this very, I mean, with one of these, um, um, one, one German newspaper, which is not perfectly famous, not really famous for very accurate um, articles. Um, they, I, I told them don't write Gulf Stream and don't say it's going to break down. And then the title was the Gulf Stream is going to no. break down. Oh my God. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm learning, right? So, I mean, this is something. So, yeah, so this, yeah. this, this maybe is we should title works. the episode that just for fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 You can do, do No, work. no, no. Don't worry. I'm, I'm just joking. Of course not. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm used to this now. So, I mean, okay. So, going back to the system. So, it's the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation. There is also a system called Gulf Stream. But that is mostly wind-driven. It's a part of the circulation system. It integrates with it. But um, strictly speaking, the Gulf Stream itself isn't density-driven. So what I just described about the sinking motion, because you have this heavy water mass sinking down, that's what we call density-driven motion. The Gulf Stream is mostly wind-driven, and those winds come from the Coriolis forest. So they are um, induced by the rotation of the Earth, basically. So... Uh, and the short version is as the Gulf Stream won't collapse as long as the Earth rotates. Um, so mm-hmm. it won't collapse. But the is AMOC. It, is, is it kind of uh, per, correct to say the Gulf Stream is 
in, in a way a part of the AMOC or is it just it, not? It's, it's part of this Atlantic Meridional okay. Overturning Circulation System in a sense, yeah. That's, right. that's okay to say. It's um, the, there's the North Atlantic Drift or North Atlantic Current, which is the basically the, the Gulf Stream goes from the Gulf of Mexico to Newfoundland. And then when it, so the, the extension of it that crosses the Atlantic Ocean and then also really brings this um, warm, Water masses um, to to Europe and leads to this to this relative relatively mild climate in in the northern parts of Europe and I think you're in Oslo now so in Oslo it's probably mm -hmm. four or five degrees warmer than than it should be well, mm. should be than it would would be with so, without the without the this North Atlantic drift yeah. so that is that is density driven and that and then the whole Atlantic meridional overturning circulation. We believe is also mostly the strength is mostly driven by by density gradients, and what can happen then if you put in too much fresh water into the North Atlantic mm -hmm. by melting the Greenland ice sheet, by melting Arctic sea ice, by more precipitation. So we know, like completely independent of this ocean circulation system, we know that in a warming climate. The, the 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 air can hold more moisture so you will have more so the whole hydrological cycle um, is accelerated is enhanced so we have more precipitation we have more river runoff so we have a lot of sources for increased um, freshwater flux into the north atlantic and that um, makes these water masses relatively lighter so it might so i mean it, it, it hinders the, the the sinking and that's yeah. what we believe is one of the reasons why this, uh, why the AMOC has been slowing down for quite some time. And this is not something that I discovered. This is well right. known. Yeah, we've seen some papers on that. Like, uh, I can't remember the name of the scientist um, positing that it's been slowing or weakening for what, 1600 years or something? Yes, like, exactly. Uh, By Thornley, yes, well. there's a recent paper, exactly. Um, yeah, so it has been slowing. It's slower now than at least in 1600 years in the past. Um, and yeah, so the one thing that is crucial about this is, so if there's a positive feedback involved. So you have this northward flow of um, salty water, and then you, the stronger that flows, the more salt, the more heavy salty water is brought to the North Atlantic, the stronger the sinking, and that accelerates the flow further. Okay. And that is what maintains, so that is what, so the strong mode of this AMOC that we currently see, it is maintained by this positive feedback. And the risk is that if we put in, if, if there's too much fresh water poured into the North Atlantic, then this positive feedback might collapse. And then we could have mm -hmm. a quite abrupt, and abrupt in this case means decades still. Yeah. Um, not, not like all the newspapers were no. putting out. Uh, the, was it the day? The, the what's tomorrow. the film? The day after tomorrow? Yeah, Yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. like, oh my god, this is peak science communication from them. In, oh. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I, I shouldn't comment. Um, no, 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 of so, course. No, <laughs> um, no that was... What, yeah. What's the... What's the... Um, like... I, I guess uh, a lot of people might might see or hear about this research and think that it's even in a way a positive thing that it cools, for example, Europe uh, down yeah. because you know people have you know people who aren't I guess um, constantly looking into these sort of things they just hear a lot about global warming and now you know someone like you then is coming and saying well this this thing breaking down could actually cool things down so they might think you know oh okay well then 
we're we're based, we're we're good. <laughs> Everything is is uh, is equaled out. But what's the actual kind of what can people expect to see, or maybe not in their lifetime, but um, as effects? Because you do mention some effects on Africa, on on North America, that sort of thing in your paper. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the paper itself, I don't really say much about the effects. I mean, I, I mean, I, may, I, I summarize some of, of what has been studied before. I don't in that paper. I really just focus. Let's maybe do that. I mean, I'm going to come to the impacts in a second. Yeah. Let's yeah, maybe sure. quickly. So this positive feedback and the collapse. So you could have like an abrupt in terms of decades. You could have a, um, a collapse, which doesn't mean a breakdown. Just a, so it just switches from one stable branch, the fast. So from one, from one stable mode of operation, the, the strong one that we currently see, to a weaker one. And the question is, when does, I mean, so the, theoretically, Basically, at the I mean, back of an envelope computations, you can show that this is in principle possible. And the question is, of course, are we going towards such a point? Uh, because there's also direct expansion just due to global warming, the ocean expands. And then it also becomes the density reduces just by that. But mm-hmm. then that would just mean a, a linear slowdown of the AMOX. So the question was sort of the slowdown that we all, we, that, I mean, that is basically established that many people have confirmed. Is it just the thermal expansion, so just a linear process where we don't have to expect anything abrupt to happen in the future? Or is it really this, I mean, is this salt advection feedback, this positive feedback that I mentioned, is that already somehow relevant? And is there like a nonlinear process going on? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what I analyzed in my paper. And this was really just exclusively this. I searched for fingerprints of the AMOC because we don't have a direct observational data for longer than a few, very few decades. So that wasn't enough to do such an analysis. So I looked for fingerprints and sea surface temperature patterns and salinity patterns of the Atlantic Ocean. So the way how the AMOC um, circulates to some extent defines how the sea surface temperatures look like and how the salinity is distributed in the Atlantic Ocean. And from that, you can sort of compute back proxies of the AMOC strength itself. Mm -hmm. Using this data, I was looking for um, signs of what we call critical slowing down which is essentially a sign of if you have a nonlinear system and you bring it closer to such a critical point where it would collapse, it um, has these characteristic um, signs um, that would that are that are preceding the critical transition. Which so are mostly in, in indices. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Uh, in, indices. <laughs> indices. Uh, it, it's are, mostly are these the, based the eight, the eight indices that you you mentioned. The eight indices are the fingerprints of the AMOC. Okay. And then these are basically give me time series of the AMOC strength. And by I, you can exact directly see that they're going down, they're declining. Right. But then the question is, is this just a linear decline? Right, right. Or yeah. is this going something that is part of a destabilization? And I mean, if I've, I've given, I mean, this, this example, I've made this several times, but maybe it helps. Imagine a chair, just stable on its four legs, and you just shift it to the right. And the only thing that you can measure is like one point at the at the top part of the chair. And then you the other option you have is you can tilt it, right? The, you can tip the chair. And then it's not going to be stable anymore, and you're going to reach a point where it then just collapses. And if you just still can only measure the one top point at that I mean, then the two situations look almost the same, but they are dynamically completely different. And one way to track, to, dis- to discriminate between the two situations is to look at the 
like small scale fluctuations around the presumed equilibrium state of the system. So okay. if you take the chair, if it's standing on its four legs and you, you disturb it slightly, mm -hmm. then it, it just will stay on its four legs. It will not, it will basically not respond. On yeah. the other hand, if it's already, if you tilted it and it's already close to this critical point at which you, you make it fall, then just very small perturbations will be, will show a very large, large response already. And it will take longer to come back into its current equilibrium, sort of. Uh, so you have an increase in memory and in what we call the autocorrelation, and you have an increase in the variability and the variance. And this is something that you can, in time series, you can, you can look at the changes in these indicators, in these critical slowing down indicators. And that's all I did, basically. It's basically taking eight different <laughs> looking at these indicators. Yeah. And then, of course, you have to do a lot around it. But that's, that was the core of the analysis. Yeah, I mean it's already it's already a lot. It's not a, yeah. it's not a small feat for sure. So based on these results, it looks like that the AMOC has indeed moved towards the critical point. And I was by myself surprised, and I um, I'm, I'm I'm happy that I don't have to make statements like the IPCC has to make about giving confidence levels and about things to happen. So I'm um, I'm just saying. So this sort of data analysis suggests. That there, that there might, might have been a stability loss. Um, and now we have to investigate this further. Now, coming back, sorry for the long interlude, coming back to your question about the um, impact. So um, may, maybe putting in, because you, I mean, the, the uncertainties on, I mean, I said this earlier. So then of course people asked, so when is it gonna, gonna happen? Well, when, is, when, is the gonna, when is the Gulf Stream gonna break down? <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then I, um, so there's uncertainties in how much more CO2 and other greenhouse gases we are going to put into the atmosphere in the future. That's like, mm -hmm. I mean, massive uncertainty. We just don't know. Um, we hope it's going to be less than, than it looks <laughs> like, but you know, it's, it's at that kind of, um, it's not even quantitative. It's, it's really like qualitative uncertainties. Mm -hmm. Then there is, um, the uncertainties in climate sensitivity and climate response. So we don't really know. Um, to what degree of warming a given, even if we knew the CO2 emissions in the future, we don't really know for sure to how much warming that will lead. And that warming globally is different from warming in the Arctic. Warming in the Arctic, there's Arctic amplification. So it has been warming much, much more quickly in the Arctic than it has in the rest of the planet. Um, then we don't know how much, that, to how much melt that precisely is going to lead. So and to how much more precipitation in the North Atlantic. So the exact amounts of freshwater are highly uncertain. Then a lot of that freshwater is advected. So it's transported away from the region before it can really be very harmful for the AMOC. But that could change that. And we, I mean, it's really hard to quantify. So the response of the AMOC to that meltwater, there's another answer. So we have a causal chain that we understand very well physically. We know in, in which directions things go. But to give precise numbers on when what is going to happen is absolutely still completely yeah. impossible. And that's a situation that sometimes is difficult to understand. I think that you can have a very good physical understanding of something, and there's still you also have a very good understanding of the uncertainties, and yet you and and you just come to the conclusion that they are huge, and then you can't. Address, I mean, you can't answer to those questions really, apart from saying that. The more CO2 goes into the atmosphere, the more melting you will have and the weaker the AMOC yeah. will be and the more you will push it towards that critical point. Yeah. 
so the more CO2 we don't put into the atmosphere, the lower the likelihood that it's going, that the AMOC is going to transition to the sweet mode at some point. These kind of statements you can do, but you can't do this in a quantitative way. I wonder if you've been contacted or or kind of asked to speak to or something to leaders and you know either politics or or that sort of thing. Um, have have people do people ever like in those positions ever take an interest in actually like talking to you your lab or or um, people in your in your institute? We are. I mean, I mean, obviously, people have um, picked this up. Other politicians, many more have picked it up and somehow um, used it. I mean, used this information then have actually spoken to me or, or approached me. Um, but we will have a panel discussion, um, or sort of in a, in a satellite event around the, 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 the COP in Glasgow, okay. where we're going to discuss this. Um, yeah, but I still owe you the impact. So what is right, going right. to Yes, of course, of course. I'm, I'm distracting I, I, myself. Uh, distracting <laughs> listeners myself. will know I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm number one in uh, going off tangents. And, and yeah, and I'm number worry. two then. <laughs> um, <laughs> But so yes, let, so we don't know if it's if it's going to happen. We don't know when. We just say the likelihood has increased in the, let's say in course of, in the course of the last century. And then the question is, what's going to happen? If it, I mean, what's what's what are the impacts? What are the consequences? Um, we could, of course, if we had higher like enough data from past climates, let's say the last hundred hundreds of thousands of years, and if that would be at a quality that would suffice, then we could just read it off those past past records um, but those they don't really allow to to go into details they give you some guidance of what's happening but it, i mean it's not uh, on their own it doesn't work like that so we take models again these nice machines that we talked about earlier earth system models they have to be at a specific resolution the so-called eddy resolving resolution to really get the um the amoc right that's my my take um, and then we can you can just force, I mean, basically artificially, you put a lot of fresh water into the North Atlantic in these models until the AMOC is shut down, or mm -hmm. at least it's in its slow mode. Now I made the mistake of shutting it down myself. Um, so you have the, the, the collapse to the weak mode, and then you look at how temperatures going to look, how precipitation fields are going to change. And what you see is a cooling in Europe that you already mentioned. Um, much stronger the northern you move the further north you move mm -hmm. and in central europe it's it's i mean according to the models in central europe it's it's, it's not going to be very dramatic and the and probably balancing off the global warming that we already have in some sense so this is what what you were um, um mentioning earlier in the northern parts of norway it's going to be much much colder in fact also, the equate is going to be probably going to, going to more than balance off the, the, the warming due to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, but this is, I mean, so the people who say, yeah, well, then it's not a bad thing. Um, so either, either they don't understand at all, or they have a very, very like Europe, Europe centric view of things. Mm -hmm. Because all, so the, 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 the heat that is not transported towards Europe anymore. That stays somewhere else. I mean, it's it's all, mm. it's all conserved. So the the cooling that you get from a from a from a collapse of the AMOC in Europe, I mean that that goes along with the warming somewhere else in the southern parts of in, in the southern hemisphere. So 
then I mean you, you don't win anything in that sense. Of course, locally, I mean if you feel like when if you only care about it's not going to be too hot when I when I sit on my terrace, then then, then yes, true. But I mean that's it's not the point. <laughs> yeah. And then there's also sort of even like more, I mean I think personally more concerning um, things than temperatures in Europe, and that's somehow the so just by the the way how the AMOC moves, it it strongly affects the um, sea surface temperatures in the tropical Atlantic Ocean. And those um, those sea surface temperatures um, they they are important for the position of a um, of, of a system that we call the intertropical convergence zone. Essentially, they are very important for how the monsoon systems of um, India, but mostly for I mean, in particular also Western Africa and, and, and tropical South America work. And so there's studies that suggest that once the AMOC um, switched to its weak mode then the monsoon in Western Africa will not work anymore, at least not in the way that right. it used to. You might even switch into more or less permanent drought conditions. Well, For the Amazon, it's more complicated. It definitely will have massive shifts in the monsoon system, whether you have these, I mean, there's then, of course, after people talked about um, these tipping elements, and then at some point they talked about the interactions, and then there's this fancy um, keyword of tipping cascades whether a shutdown or like whether a, a collapse of the AMOC will um, also lead to a collapse of the Amazon to a savanna state. I, I mean, it's very, very unclear. I mean, the rainfall patterns will change, but it's not necessarily the case that it will, um, will negatively affect the Amazon. It could also be that you have more dry season rainfall. These are things that are really, I mean, this is, this is ongoing research. This is exactly what we do in this types project. Is there a way that, for example, the uh, switching of the AMOC to the weak to its weak mode could impact something that then impacts it back? Like, do you see what I mean? It could could like one tipping point tip something else, which then tips it right back, etc. Like, is that the kind of situation that we're in with the yes. Earth system? Yeah. Absolutely, of course. It's a, it's a complex system in that sense, um, and it, but it's also important to 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 note that it's not always. So a tipping in one system doesn't always need to lead to a tipping in the other system. Right. Even if they are coupled, a tipping in one system could shift the other, another system somewhere where it's much more stable in principle. Then that exact, but that shift of the other system towards some, towards some, somewhere more stable could then again have an effect on a third system, as you, right. as you explain, but also again in both directions. So either stabilizing or destabilizing. I mean, yeah, for some systems at this point, I mean, right now we are not even sure of the direction. I mean, leaving alone <laughs> when it's going to happen, we don't even know exactly. I mean, we know, don't know for sure whether it's a positive or a negative effect that's, that we'll see. So since the like um, the weakening of the AMOC involves events such as increased, or at least the increase of freshwater would lead to the weakening of the AMOC. Um, if we reached a severe a state in which the AMOC was weakened severely, um, considering, you know, those causes, what, would it be, how feasible would it be to recover the AMOC strength, I, I guess, in the, in the context of those very particular causes? That's a very good question. It's also very difficult to answer. So there is a system, I mean, in, in systems of this kind, like the AMOC, where we have these two competing stable states, it is, sort of what if you are in one stable state 
with so you can imagine this i mean this is i mean the, the the phenomenon is called hysteresis and i mean physicists will know what i mean it's basically it means so you you change a parameter of a system um, up to a point where you trigger the abrupt transition from the one stable state to the other and then bringing it back to the first state you'll have to change the drive down the parameter but you will have to drive it down much further than the point where you triggered the first transition so you, you're getting this this loop um and in terms of i mean i i don't have i have no idea about quantitative estimates for for the amoc but certainly you would have to reduce temperatures you would have to somehow uh, reduce the salinity uh, re reduce the freshwater content so increase the salinity in the north atlantic um mm -hmm. much further than you had at the point where, where the transition to the weak motor mode occurred so it's going to be practically i don't want to say impossible because mm. nothing but you'd have to tip the chair the whole other way right i mean it's yes you have to drive it back and you have to drive it back much further than yeah yeah um, yeah that's a, it sounds like an impossible feat but we'll we'll leave it as a blank uh yeah. <laughs> possibility yeah no, it's, I mean, definitely it's much better to prevent it from tipping in the first place. Yeah. That's the, a much better idea than trying to get it back once it tipped. Mm -hmm. I was wondering um, what it feels like to have done research on so many different parts of the world, because, you know, as we talked about in the beginning, your uh, field and your position in what you do kind of enables you to switch around a little bit, I guess, because it's more uh, mathematics based. Um, do you, is there like a big learning curve for you and when you switch, you know, for example, you, I saw that you kind of, I don't know if you started, but at least in the beginning, you did a lot of research on uh, South America and, and that kind of area. And then it seems like you went a bit North to Greenland and, and those areas. Um, you know, how does it, how does it feel first of all, to, to switch areas like that in research? Because I, I think a lot of people usually stick to one kind of part of the world. And also, I guess, second part to my question would be, how is the, is there much to learn each time in these different contexts to be able to switch? So it feels very intriguing. It, I mean, it's incredibly interesting to be able to have a, I mean, if, you're, I mean, if you are working with a focus on, on development of methods and, and this sort of theoretical um, framework, then and you can... I, mean, I don't want to say jump from one topic to the to the other, but you can sort of switch fields from time to time and go from what I, what you mentioned about. I mean, there was extreme rainfall events in South America, and then sort of looked at that at a global scale, and then switch to these critical transitions, um, which where there's like a, a, a common language in mathematics for for all of this, and then that allows you to do this. But it also um, comes with a massive risk that I underestimate the complexity of each single system that I'm looking at. And that has certainly happened that I, I did certainly made that mistake, not just once. Um, but then luckily there are, um, I mean, you don't do science on your own, but you do it with a lot of colleagues. And then there are people who, who are, um, yeah, who just know, know everything about, um, about, about certain systems that they have studied a lot. And that's why, yes, there's an amazing learning curve um, by combining uh, different skills, by you know, working with people who, who really know everything about the Greenland ice sheet and then um, 
sometimes, of course, it's 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 also I mean you get into 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 discussions and arguments because. Um, but so what, what I do where, with the perspective where I come from is, isn't, isn't necessarily um, what, what, what they are then used to. And then you have very fruitful discussions usually. Yeah, we're, we're going to, uh, to wrap it up, um, I think, uh, very soon. But I, I just have a, I just was wondering, this is something I feel we, we don't ask enough maybe um, of, kind of physical scientists, um, physicists, mathematicians and stuff that work on climates. Um, I don't know if, if you know you want to answer this. You, you're not obliged to, but um, I was wondering how you personally feel about the climate crisis. How because a lot of the time it's reduced to numbers and statistics and and all of that. But at the end of the day, it's also uh, a narrative story. It's it's an emotional journey for for humanity as a whole. Um, and you know, and you yourself are part of you know rather small group of humans. They're trying to work on understanding this issue better so that we can find solutions to it um, better. But how does it feel to, to be part of those scientists, but also just as a person for you to, to see these effects and causes and data? Well, it feels, it feels relevant. Um, I mean, I made this choice, let's say 10 years ago, it was also a risky choice to switch fields at that stage um, to go into climate science. Like from a, from a career perspective, it was risky. It, it's of course different so it's, 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 I mean, it's been my day-to-day -day thing for 10 years. So you sort of get used to sort of dramatic statements and you get used to um, possibly um, very worrisome outcomes if, we, if, if, if humans don't act appropriately in the, near, in the very near future. Um, so it's, it's, it's also then at some point, it, 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 it is a job. Like, I mean, it's, it's, you do science and, and it is... Um, I mean, I think science is very, I mean, in many fields, science is sort of has similar rules and then you just, you, you, do, you do it the same way. It is, for me, it, it is, it is, how do I put this? There is, it, it is, for me, it's very important to have sort of at least um, tell myself that what, I, what, what, what I'm doing makes sense, has, has like, has, has a meaning, whether, whether that's really the case, other people and probably like in, and some, at some point in the, the far future, I have to really judge what 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 is really what was really relevant. Um, but yeah, I mean, if if I can, the, mo the what makes me most happy is if I, if I can somehow make some sort of a contribution into um, increasing our understanding of this extremely complex Earth system, so that using this this these additional insights or based on these additional insights. Better decisions can be can be found. Better political decisions. It's really exciting to see people switching like you did to, to fields like this. Even though it was ten years ago, it's still it's still really nice to to see that um, we get all the the smart people from the physics and the and the maths <laughs> <laughs> coming into these these earth systems and such. But yeah, thank you so much, uh, Nicholas Boris, for thank for you. joining us. Uh, everybody, you can find uh, his work on the Potsdam Institute and soon at the... At the Technical University in Munich. The Technical University in Munich or the Potsdam Institute. You don't have any Twitter or anything like that, do you? I don't, in fact. No? Yeah. Okay, well, uh, if people want to uh, contact you in any way, then I guess they, they'll just have to uh, search on Google a little bit. <laughs> yeah, there's this Stone Age tool called email and then... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but thank you so much for joining us. 
I hope the our listeners got a better understanding of of uh, why the Gulf Stream is breaking down. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's been a pleasure to have you, and uh, yeah, good luck on any future research. We'll be we'll be watching it carefully. So yeah, and we'll be uh, watching you at the at the COP as well in Glasgow. Mm. Thank you. Thanks for having me.